to the Lunar Ceasefire Steven Universe Fan Podcast. We're doing episode 26 about the Steven Bomb 2 episode, Rising Tides, Crashing Skies. I'm GC13. Your boy Ken Davis. Yo soy Dakota. So, maybe not the biggest follow-up to Sworn to the Sword, but I'm a, I'm a fan of Ronaldo, so I was just fine with this episode. What did you guys think? Yes, episode would have felt a lot better if, like, we hadn't had Sworn to the Sword beforehand. It's a really good episode. Like, it was funny. I laughed. I enjoyed it. But, yeah, if you're expecting something with, like, just as much emotional intensity or perhaps even more than Sworn to the Sword, then I'm sure you were disappointed. But, but Ken, you can't make up drama this good. <laughs> that was a good line. So, I mean, like, I agree with Ken, but I think there's a second level of hype that we had for this episode. With, like, the title, this was, I think, the single most episode that we talked about the most. Everyone thought it was going to be yeah. a two-parter. We expected Malachite. We expected some something. And, I mean, we got what was essentially a character-building episode. And I don't think that was a bad thing. I think, like, because I watched it once. I went away and I did some stuff. And I came and watched it a second time. And my second time watching it, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the first time. I think the first time I was just kind of, like, disappointed that it wasn't what I wanted it to be. But for what it was, it was an okay episode. Really, we did the hype to ourselves, and that's what really hurts. Yeah, absolutely. Still a very good episode, though. Although, you know, frankly, I'm like, eh, I doubt they're going to pull out Malachite so early, especially on a Tuesday on this. I mean, if they had something that huge in here, someone would have said, no, 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 the schedule won't work. It's way too early to ever come out. I mean, it was a good episode. I feel like this is going to be the kind of episode that's re- going to be really easy to have on in the background. Um. I will say I really liked how Pearl called Ronaldo Fribo. I thought that was really funny. <laughs> that was pretty good. But, I mean, I don't know how much you could really say about this episode, because it was really good how Ronaldo was being so lazy in making this. I mean, even something it would only take him a few seconds to do a second take of, he doesn't do one, even though he screwed the first take up. Right, and his editing was just so <laughs> crappy. I mean, come on, Ronaldo. I really liked how he had his hand crash into the beach. That's what I was thinking of. All right, yeah. It's like (laughs) a little plank of wood for the explosion. Am I the only one who noticed that that crab seemed to have one eye, and then we get the giant enemy crab that Pearl strikes in the weak point for massive damage? Oh, nice. That was a crab gem? I'm pretty sure the crab that attacked him had one eye. Oh my goodness, that's great. (laughs) I didn't notice that, no. We, we, I'm, I, I can go back and check later, but that's what I saw. haven't noticed anybody talk about that yet, actually. This episode did address something that we've brought up multiple times on the show, which is the fact that Ronaldo just doesn't really seem to associate the weird stuff going on in Beach City with the Crystal Gems, even though it's so incredibly obvious. So I'm glad that the show did get around to it. You mean like there at the end when Petey was like, that means you won't have anything to blog about anymore? And Ronaldo's like, no. Well, yeah, but even before that, it's like the entire premise of the episode that Ronaldo is aware that the crystal gems are behind all the weird stuff, whereas beforehand he didn't seem to make that connection. See, he's developing as a character. Right. <laughs> He'll reach level two yet. <laughs> no, I love I don't Ronaldo. Know, he's, he's just so busy adminning Reddit that I mean, what is he gonna do? Ronaldo's got all of his points synced into conspiracy theories. You know, he, he just doesn't, he'll never have the fighting power of a dedicated warrior like Steven or Connie. Right. We also get to hear some of the people in Beach City's feelings towards the Crystal Gems, which seems to just be mostly indifference. Like, maybe they can even be convinced to not like them, but it's a very mild or moderate dislike. Yeah, they're like, eh, whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, like, maybe I wish they weren't there. Fryman's like, what do you want me to do? Yeah, right. And then Nanafwa's like, eh, well, you know, there's only been the one invasion, so I'm not going to hold that against him, you know. <laughs> yeah. Any moment with Nanafwa is a good moment. I love Nanafwa so much. She's probably one of my favorite minor characters. Tipty truck! <laughs> Way to defuse the situation, Nanafwa. I kind of wish they weren't so passive about it, though. What do you mean, Ken? I wish that the characters in Beach City really cared more about the Crystal Gems. I don't really want this to, like, devolve into a kind of stereotypical plot where it's, like, this episode's kind of pointing at, where all the people are upset at the Crystal Gems, and so there's a conflict, and they're, like, kicked out of town, and that's used for some cheap emotional drama. I don't want that, but I would like there to be a little bit of resentment, or if there's not any resentment, then I would like it to be focused on why there isn't. Like, maybe the people in the town really appreciate the work the Crystal Gems do to keep them safe and protect the planet, but instead, we get neither. We just get this mild indifference, which I think is Funny, I think that's the interesting part. Mayor Dewey seems to be the only citizen of town who recognizes that the crystal gems are a hazard. Everybody else is like, eh, you know, whatever. Whereas Mayor Dewey's constantly biting his fingernails, worried about, you know, what what, what do I do? Right. <laughs> Did you get the impression that he was, like, trying to cover something up? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, you're... I do, but... I kind of want to read that less as there's a legitimate thing to cover up and more as, like, Mayor Dewey is just that bad of a politician and he thinks that this is something he needs to cover up. Whereas if, like, Crystal Gems became national news for something, I think they would just be all like, eh, leave us alone. I don't think any of the gems would actually care. That's Dakota basically, basically has it like, I think, he's not actively covering it up. He is, however, very sensitive to charges that he is because he'd very much rather nobody talk about it. Right, I wasn't sure if I should read the joke in the way that you guys just described, or if this was going to be, like, something that comes back later on, where Mayor Dewey is involved in some really plot-heavy conspiracy, and I was leaning towards the latter, but maybe you can convince me to be the former. Basically, the way I see Mayor Dewey covering up the crystal gems is basically somebody, like, you know, Nanafwad, an event, you know innocently points out the temple for some reason you know like oh hey the temple looks really pretty over your banner and he's like oh um let's talk about something other than that 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 (laughs) that tamir dewey would be the cover-up that he is responsible for right right i mean i think as of shirt club we can kind of understand that mayor dewey is incompetent but like good-hearted just i mean like a really Wonky politician. How can you call him incompetent? He knows how to gank that youth vote, boy. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I love that line. I love that is that is like one of my favorite lines from that episode. <laughs> That's probably my most memorable line in the series. Props to whoever put that one in there. Mayor Dewey's not going to do any actual cover-ups, but he feels like he should be. So any opportunity to feel like he's doing that, he'll take it. It goes to the highest levels of local government. I promise you, someone's going to make a post about that being evidence of the gem secretly controlling all governments. But, I mean, I... And I think this is probably saying something coming from me who wants to read into every single thing. But I don't I don't think that really means anything. Because I'm pretty convinced that the gems really just don't care about any human going yeah, on. it's the Sneeple who control all the governments. Everybody knows that. Gems? Jeez. 
arguing on anime boards. Gems don't be delusional. That's like where all the crazy conspiracy people talk about, you know? Sneeple is where it's at. But it was funny watching the the gems fight that uh, giant enemy crab. Amethyst actually got to do something useful. She chopped its she top, chopped its claw off. Oh yeah, I noticed that. I was thinking the same thing. So maybe maybe Amethyst is finally leveling up. You, you know, she's flushed with confidence after her victory over Peridot. It was her doubt that was holding her back the whole time. Hey, could be. I'm just gonna say Amethyst is best. Really, we only ever see her do well in fights, either when she's angry or when Steven's in danger. But now neither of those things were true, and she was quite competent. She seems to have, you know, worked through some of her issues. I wonder if that was intentional or if I'm just reading too much into it. I don't know. I mean, like, you think that the power of her whip is going to change based on her emotion? Because we know that she was able to cut down the leg of the uh, gem drill thing. I, I think the her skill with the whip, like you know, earlier in the series, all the, all her whip was ever good for was getting them in trouble. Like when she pulls the centipedal, you know, closer to them, and then you know knocks the whole crew out all at once with that. Whereas now, ever since she did it in Marble Madness, she used her whip effectively, and then she was able to beat Peridot off screen. She actually put up a decent enough fight against Pearl, too. But again, Pearl was dodging with her eyes closed, so... And then now, against the crab, she uses her whip perfectly. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to rewatch it before I develop, like, any kind of strong opinions either way. Well, it's just, like, a... It's very short. The, the fight is clearly choreographed, so it's not the important part. But she does slice the... Slice the claw clean off while Pearl's trying to shoot the crab in the eye. I think that it's a fair statement to say that, like, even though Pearl might be a more skilled fighter because of her use of strategy, Amethyst is, like, just an inherently stronger gem because that's what she was made to do. She was made to fight. I mean, I don't think that's an unfair statement. Yeah, Pearl is not built for fighting. She knows that deep down. But, you know, whereas Sworn to the Sword was, like, massive lore bomb, this gave us a little bit of exposition. I was very interested to have them finally just come right out and say that Yes, you know, magical creatures are drawn to us. They alluded to it ever since the first episode of the series, but they finally come out and said it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you know, I can't see any other reason why the temple would be such a magnet. I guess it could be put in a strategically important spot, like, you know, ley lines or whatever the gem magic uses, but... I just I just thought of something, Um, and this is... This is more sworn to the sword than it is rising tides, crashing skies. But the gems are in North America. We know they've been there for quite a long time, but we also know that Pearl is familiar with the concept of the human knight. Like, the time frame is when there's not going to be anyone in North America except for maybe a few Vikings who are just going to come and leave. So I'm wondering if maybe they started over in Europe. I mean, there are plenty of people in North America. Yeah, there were but... there were lots of people. They were right, but those were Native Americans. They were not people who were going to be knights. That's not the culture that she was acclimated to or knew anything about. And I mean, I, I'm also thinking about like some of the Indian influences because I mean, obviously the gems designs they they draw upon a lot of the Indian gods or goddesses rather. And because I don't know, I, I was thinking about this earlier that maybe the in-universe explanation for a lot of Hindu religion is that. Some Hindu people saw the gems and like started worshiping, start worshiping them. I don't know. Mm. 
I don't know, but since we're on the subject of Sworn to the Sword, I was doing some thinking about the, you know, when Pearl says that some of the first battles for Earth were here in this arena, and I know last night I was talking about, well, you know, did they first do the rebellion as a battle of champions and it escalated into open warfare? But today, after I watched it for the fourth time, I I had this thought that, What if the battles were fought against human champions? You know, this is how the gems basically got got the humans to leave them alone. They said, we're taking these spots, and if you have anything to say about it, you can see us in the arena. Okay, wait. So you think it was all gems versus humans, or gems and humans versus other gems? Because, like, the second reading makes some logical sense to me, because Greg says um, in the season one finale... That gems died people, too. Uh, Well, I'm saying that in the first stages of the gem conquests, they challenged the the humans to send their best warriors. And, you know, gems would beat them in single or group combat, you know, whatever whatever terms that the gems and the humans would find honorable. And that is where the origin of the taboo against dealing with gem stuff, you know, came from. And it's like, they whooped us repeatedly and all they want to do want us to do is leave them alone so let's just leave them alone i believe i i buy that but qualifier if and if pearl's line in political power about how she remembers humans as a hunter gatherer society is not a throwaway line if it is in fact intentional to show us this longer time frame then it really makes me it makes me question humans relationship to the gems i mean especially like outside of beach city and delmarva um, if not, and that was just a throwaway line that they didn't think through for the time frame um, being around like the, the Bronze Age, then I think that that's somewhat reasonable. I don't know. There's a lot to consider. I don't know, but I think in North America, the development of agriculture was a little bit later. So if the kindergarten construction work is in America, is in you know North America, not very far from Delmarva, then she may, may have had prolonged contact with native with uh, hunter-gatherer tribes. Because I do not oh. know exactly when agriculture started in that region, but I know that it spread towards the northeast, you know, from further south. So they're up in the area where it would have got there last. Even if Pearl was just talking about, like, hunter-gathering societies in the sense of North American or uh, Native American people, that would still make sense context-wise for them to arrive around the Bronze Age. Yeah. Um, so I guess, okay, but that still doesn't explain the question, I think, of like knighthood. I think they had to have been in Europe at some point. Europe, or at least over overseas in those other continents that are not America. Not the Americas. Well, humans have had warriors who owe everything to their loyalty to a powerful, successful warlord for a long time, so... The aesthetic that Pearl is drawing on isn't the Native American, like, aesthetic. And, I mean, I I get the argument you're saying that she could have learned about these traditions through some other medium, like books or, or, or what have you. But, I mean, if the comics are canon, we know that Pearl doesn't read human books. And we also know that Pearl is just largely uninterested in humanity. I don't think it's such a reasonable to make the assumption that the gems were like going around the entire earth before the war or like even during the war, but after the war settled in North America, I just I I'm convinced at this point that at some point something had to have happened in Europe. Like some kind of conflict, something. Well they have they have gem emplacements all over the world. Right. Right. 
And, you know, at the time, it would be more towards the Middle East that you'd be getting the great civilizations in. That's true. That's true. I'm assuming a, assuming a mid-Bronze Age, assuming a mid-Bronze Age rebellion, you know, we would be... Well, no, that's true, because that would also explain the Hindu influence of um, that we see in the show. That would explain a lot of that as well. That's, still pre- that's, that's pretty far east of the Cradle of Civilization, though. Okay, so level two to this analysis and actually linking it back to the episode we're supposed to be talking about. Good on you. Any thoughts on why the temple is in North America? It's a mystery to me. Like, why are they in Delmarva? It doesn't seem like they really need to be there because Pearl didn't object. Yeah, they have the warp pads. They can go wherever. Well, even more so than that. Well, yeah, well, that's true. But I'm just saying that Pearl didn't really object very much to leaving, and neither did Amethyst when Garnet made the decision. And even when they were under the impression that they really might be leaving, it wasn't like they weren't protesting. They were, they were fine with it. It was more of a minor annoyance than anything else. You know, talking about the move, though, Pearl said something that I think is very telling. She said that they would have to move the bubbles if they left Beach City. Now, we know that the temple is in interdimensional space, but if they would have to move the bubbles, that means that it is tied to where, you know, on Earth they enter it from. So maybe they slip... Right. I I, I don't know. All this extra dimensional... So once you get beyond third dimensions, you kind of lose me. But, you know, it's tied to that location. It's not just they can pop in there from anywhere. It has to be that door. Which is weird because it ties to several places within the temple, but you know, you get maybe you got some wiggle room on your door. I don't know. Well, what do you think of the concept of pocket dimensions here? That like the the door isn't an interdimensional portal to some other place in some other space, but rather it's a pocket dimension, and for them to move means they would have to create a new base with the new pocket dimension in that base. Yeah, same base, same basic thing. It's tied to that location on Earth. Right. It's not like a portable hole from Dungeons & Dragons or a bag of holding where you just carry the pocket dimension wherever you want. They can't just cut that door out of the temple face and put it somewhere else. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll have to go to Tumblr and, like, badger them with really inane questions. You know, really make them flip through the series Bible if they have one looking for answers. Maybe scribble in an answer so that they know for future reference that this is how this piece of gem magic works because you know i said it before a few episodes back but with a with a world like this it's really tough to have everything figured out right from the start well i guess that means we're just gonna have to ask joe johnston he's the only one who's gonna give us a serious answer yeah (laughs) we're not gonna ask matt burnett that's for sure oh you know what let's go ask matt Uh uh-oh uh-oh go ask matt so, Matt, I have some serious canon questions. Are you ready no. for Doorgate, everybody? I'm ready for Doorgate. I think I'm more interested in Timeline Gate. Yeah, Timeline... I, I think I think we'd be more likely to get good answers about the door. The timeline is probably tied very intimately into the story they want to tell, whereas with the door, it's just a really simple, well, you know, this is how the gem magic works, or, well, let's be honest, we haven't thought about it too hard, you know, just... One of those two answers. I mean, right. to be frank, I'm kind of kicking myself that I never thought about like the hunter gatherers being Native American people, because that seems like the most that seems to make the most sense. You know, that that's what she meant, especially if they were in North America. She saw that she saw Native American people hunting and gathering. Yeah, well, like I said, I, they got they got agriculture just you know a bit later. Right, but we know Amethyst is at least six thousand years old. Yeah. Or rather, we know the war started at least 6,000 years ago. 
We know the war at least started 6,000 years ago. So we, so we know it was in the 5 to 6 range. And I wonder how long the wars went on. Jeez, hmm. I really want to know more about the gem timeline. I think I'm going to just have to sit down on every episode that they've mentioned something about the timeline. That this happened at x Plane in the past. Scratch some stuff out and figure something out. Or one of our listeners could do that and post it in the comments. I've basically been doing that in my head the whole time. We just don't have the source material for that yet. It's going to come. I have faith right. that we'll learn more about the timeline, but it, it we're just not there yet. You know, as much of like a really soft episode as this was, I'm not going to say it was a bad or a throwaway episode, but as a soft episode as this was, it has certainly sparked a lot of discussion. Oh, yeah. I mean, just because of a few throwaway lines after uh, Ronaldo comes to gripe with the crystal gems and they, they, they send the lore hounds, you know, baying into the baying at the moon. On the hunt. You said it. It's there. I know. Right. I thought this episode was good. I do think it was good. It just I was I was really hoping for for Malachi. I think we all were, but you can't. I can't help but be disappointed. Just like I was hoping for Stevani. I think we all knew it was a little early for Malachi, but that didn't stop us from crossing our fingers. You know, Malachi did not ever cross my mind, even a single time. A few other things of notes: the scene where Onion looks like he's going to talk, and he slaps the mic out. That was funny. Oh, that was good. The bait and switch from the Master of Trolldom. Right, right. Uh, but I guess I guess that's it for Rising Tides, Crashing Skies. We're looking forward to keeping it together tomorrow. That should be... Well, I don't know if anybody's seen... I don't know if everybody's seen the episode summary. You know, we, we have it posted here if you want to see it. But it should definitely drop a Stop. lore bomb on us. I'm not going to say... Stop. I'm not going to say what. Stop. I'm just expecting a lore bomb. Just... I already know the title. I didn't even want to know that. Okay. Just... You hurt me. Well, you know, I, I have been known to assume direct control, so... One day we're going to get through an episode without a Mass Effect reference. One day, One day but not today. <laughs> <laughs> so we will all see, we will see you all tomorrow for keeping it together. I'm GC13. I really like the joke when Garnet says, okay, at the end, I'm Ken. I am a collective of squirrels. See you tomorrow. Our opening and closing music is by James Roach. For more Steven Universe fan-related content, please visit LunarCSpire.com. Thank you for listening. Peace in the Middle East, boy!